taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. Coming to you from Pilot Mountain, North Carolina, and Ronan, Montana, this is the Bellator Christie Podcast, and we present to you, before we get started today, the Word of the Lord. And today's passage of Scripture comes from Matthew chapter 9, verses 37 and 38, where Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in and engaging with us. Uh, we're praying that this podcast helps bless you um, and uh, helps answer any questions that you may have. But um, did you engage with us last week um, and listen in on the on the podcast then and, and listen to us discuss about uh, divorce and uh, remarriage um, as a ministry? Um, we, we wanted to put something out there that... that uh, uh, maybe help to answer questions and uh, maybe ease some thoughts there. And if you do have anything, just go ahead and fire, fire us an email and uh, we'll be glad to visit with you about that. Uh, let's go ahead and welcome on the founder of Bellator Christie, Brian Chilton. Hello, Brian. Hey, Curtis. Hope you're doing well. Doing good. I do have, to say, do have to say a word. Uh, one of our uh, contributors, Michelle Johnson, uh, she is. She and her husband Steve are actually in Montana now as we speak, and uh, th- oh, yeah? I think that they were up at the Glacier uh, National Park. And uh, it's like, I told, that's like forty miles away from me. Well, I told her I said you, you're not far from Curtis, and and she told me yeah. where she came to a community not quite as far south as as you are, but she did say Curtis lives in some beautiful. A beautiful la- area. Yeah. <laughs> she, yeah, she said that more than yeah. Me. We're 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 what um, like five minutes, ten minutes away from Flathead Lake, and then uh, right above that is Kalispell, and then you got uh, you know Whitefish and so on, and that's where she would have probably come down to is in the Whitefish or Kalispell. That's about sixty miles away from us there. So yeah, I, I think she may have even said Kalispell, if I'm not mistaken. But yeah, anyhow. Yeah, that's a beautiful countryside up there. Yep. Yeah, the that's pic- crazy. The pictures had me uh, envious as well. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, so, uh, Brian, I think uh, there were some articles and then there was some big news for the ministry. You want to go ahead and fire away at those? Yeah, just uh, first of all, just want to say very thankful for David and Mary Beth Baggett uh, for allowing me to be part of the uh, Moral Apologetics team. Uh, recently published a uh, response to uh, some of the folks at uh, Desiring God, uh, which is I don't take lightly. Uh, some of the individuals had said that empathy uh, they they claimed was a sin, and so uh, and I wrote an article for. Uh, Moral apologetics. Actually, have have it posted um, at uh, Bellator Christie as well. But it's called No Wormwood. Empathy is not a sin. Uh, so go to Moral Apologetics. Uh, check it out. You can also check it out at Bellator Christie as well. So uh, really excited about that. It's gotten a lot of response thus far, and uh, if nothing else, I hope it gets people thinking. Um, and I think so far that's that's been that's been going on. So I'm very excited about awesome. that. Awesome. 
also definitely have some big news. Uh, Dr. T.J. Gentry, uh, who we had, uh, we had him on. Uh, was it a month ago? Somewhere around there. Um, summer for some yeah for part of our summer interview series, he's actually agreed to come on as a cri- contributor for the Bellator Christie podcast. That's so great. you'll be seeing his articles coming up monthly. Uh, so we're excited about that. TJ has some great stuff. Just a great man of God. Uh, so I'm excited to see him join the team. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's uh, that, it's, he's going to be a. He's going to be a great contributor. Um, some of the stuff that he does, man, is, is just excellent. So It really is. Anyway, we've got a guest today. Want to go ahead and introduce him? We have a guest who's excellent in his own right. We have with us Dr. Brian Melton, and uh, he has almost 20 years' experience in Christian higher education and administration. He has published two books and multiple articles on a wide variety of topics. Uh, he has a Ph.D. in history. Uh, he and his family have shared many adventures together all over the world, and he's author of the book that we'll be discussing today called The Rack Turn Method. So we want to join, uh, we want to welcome with us on the Billator Christie podcast, Dr. Brian Melton. And thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, welcome aboard. So, Brian, is it okay if we call you Brian? Yeah, absolutely, if it's not confusing for everyone. <laughs> so, so this is Brian talking to Brian. You know, people have accused me of talking to myself before, but at least I have an excuse this time. <laughs> so, first of all, we want to ask you, uh, how, did you how did you come to faith? Well, I grew up in a house uh, that was sort of split on the issue of faith. My mother was a very strong Christian. Uh, grew up in the uh, conservative United Methodist tradition, uh, and, and I grew up following her lead. My father was agnostic at best. Uh, he was the kind of person who didn't care about any of that sort of thing, didn't want to talk about it, didn't want anything to do with it. Well, I thankfully went to the root of my mother, uh, and I accepted Christ at a youth camp uh, before I uh, even got to high school. But for, the very, for a very long time, my faith was, I guess, what you'd call stereotypical because it was exactly the kind of thing that you would normally think of in that there was a huge emphasis on uh, emotions, a huge emphasis on feeling, uh, because that was how you worshiped God. Uh, and the next big step in my faith, uh, that I guess, so, sort of completed uh, that part of my faith uh, journey was simply... To, uh, to, to go to Toccoa Falls College, where I uh, met a number of excellent professors, particularly I'll uh, call out Dr. Donald Williams, a wonderful man, wonderful apologist, and he and others introduced me to the fact that I can worship the Lord, not just with my heart, but also with my soul and my mind and my hands. Mm. All of that is the goal of the Christian life. Uh, they and, and they introduced me specifically to Francis Schaeffer, to the philosophical side of C.S. Lewis. I've also uh, done some publishing uh, on Lewis uh, along the way, which is a lot of fun. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, the more you understand Tolkien's worldview and how it played itself out in his creative works, the more fascinating it becomes. Uh, but since then, it's sort of been that's sort of been the uh, I guess the the tune that my faith tries to dance to, is like Schaefer said, worshiping the Lord, uh, searching for the Lordship of Christ in the totality of life. So it doesn't matter where you are or what you're doing, 
even what we're even even writing a book or teaching a class or doing any of those sorts of things that that, that is as much a form of worship uh, as a praise chorus. Amen. Uh, and that, that has really shaped the way I've looked at faith. And that's and that's good. that's one thing too. I mean, Curtis and I've talked about this even off the air um, about how studying these issues, as you said, it is a form of worship because you know, as I, as I've studied theology and and even history, uh, looking at the ancient history or surrounding Jesus and the disciples, just something about it it, it makes me feel closer to that time. And so, um, I don't know. There's just a connection that happens with studying these these issues that really, as you said, it is a form of worship. Well, I think it very much is Christ calls us to do it. Uh, if you look at what he said, uh, he said, Worship the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And it was really interesting when somebody pointed out to me for the first time that that differs from the Old Testament version in that Christ is specifically calling out the mind. Mm. Uh, the, the the Old Testament Jewish version of the soul included the mind. Right. But when Jesus was speaking to a Greek audience, uh, the Greeks drew a line between mind and soul. And so for Jesus to go back and pull that out specifically and wow. say, I want you to worship, with my, worship me with your mind, too, uh, and he puts it on the same level as everything else. You're not a, you know, you're not a second-class citizen because you're an intellectual <laughs> in the Church of God. Uh, it's it, it was really mind blowing. <laughs> Never thought about that. I mean, my mind's blown right now just thinking about that. <laughs> so, with your book, the Rack Turn Method, what was your intended purpose for the book, and who is your intended audience? Okay, well. The book actually kind of had two stages, and so I could divide that up, that question up into why was the book written and why was the book published? Uh, why was the book written? Well, I had just been coming out of a, uh, a work situation for a university that uh, largely resembles the university that you see Sardis Christian University, our mythical university, in the Turn method. And I had seen frankly, a lot of very good people mistreated very badly, often specifically in the name of Christ. Mm -hmm. And if not explicitly in the name of Christ, at least in the name of the mission of the school. Mm -hmm. uh, and I really don't want to get into the weeds on that. That could be another whole podcast at some point if you want. Oh, sure. Uh, but it was something that just, it, it, it bothered me. Uh, it outraged me. It's one of the reasons why I left that particular university of my own accord uh, before uh, things really started to uh, to hit the fan. Uh, so I just couldn't I couldn't stand it much longer, and I didn't want to be associated with it. Um, so the very first aspect of the rack turn method was, uh, I guess, an exercise in spleen venting. Uh, <laughs> I felt like I just had to say something, and I had to put it somewhere. And you can kind of tell it, it's it's modeled uh, after the after the um, the screw tape letters, right. and I'll I'll take it as God's will that it went in the stages because if I had intended to publish this thing originally, I would not have chosen screw tape because screw tape is wonderful. But you want to talk about an overused method? I mean, right. there there are times that I I want to ask has. Anyone who is a thinking Christian not written a screw tape letter? Uh, it's all over the place. You know, I, you mentioned your article inspired by the same thing. Absolutely. Of 
it, I'm sure it's wonderful, but it shows how ubiquitous it is. And if I were sitting down and asking myself, how am I going to be engaging and creative and come up with something that gets people's attention, I would not have gone that route for a whole book. Right. Uh, but uh, I, I wrote it. And I thought about printing some copies for some friends and whatnot. Uh, and I sent some copy. I, I sent some PDF copies uh, to David and Mary Beth Baggett uh, over at uh, Moral Apologetics. And turns out they loved it. Uh, and they thought there was a, a, actually something good to be had uh, in this this little book. And so they strongly encouraged me to, uh, to, to to go and publish it. And then they offered to do it with Moral Apologetics Press. You know, you can't beat that with a stick. Uh, just sort of handled, <laughs> handed over to you on a silver platter. Okay. Uh, and so my, my motive for publishing it with them, uh, I would say, is this. Uh, the vast majority, all of the schools that I currently teach for, are wonderful schools. Uh, I want to make sure I get that out there as we talk about this. I love working for them. They've treated me very fairly. Um, and I have no, they, they do not resemble Sardis Christian in the book. But at even the best of those, uh, there were times that I would see uh, an administrator, usually very well-meaning, somebody who's really trying to do the best job that they can, an administrator, a faculty member, uh, some a, a department chair, someone casting a very wistful eye towards uh, the school that I had left and looking at all the money they were making and wanting to try to import their methods into oh, yeah. their school. Uh, and having, having been inside that uh, and had a very, very good view of it, uh, I wasn't just an adjunct professor. I was, uh, I, I was an associate professor. I had been involved with the faculty. I had been involved with the administration. And I got to see uh, not, not as much as other people, uh, perhaps, but a lot. I got to see a lot uh, and interact with a lot of the main players. And it made me want to just jump up and say, no, stop. I, I've seen where this leads. Uh, I know what this can do to an, your mission as a school. I know what this can do to how you treat people, uh, each other, faculty, staff, students. Uh, I've seen uh, the, the transition in results. I've seen uh, what it can do to, uh, to, to academic integrity, to academic quality. Uh, and so I wrote the book hoping that somebody out there might read it uh, and if they... If, hopefully not go down that road to begin with, uh, recognize these things uh, and put the brakes on. And uh, like Lewis said, uh, if, you're, if you've gone down the wrong road, the, the most progressive person is the person who turns back the quickest. Mm -hmm. uh, recognize these issues and try to turn around and come back. At the very least, start a conversation. Try to get people actually thinking about these things. Right. Because as we uh, were talking about right before we started, Rackturn uh, in the book mentions that uh, evangelical Christianity is wonderfully defended against the uh, demonic strategies and stratagems of a generation or two ago. They know how to handle those, but they don't seem to be able to recognize what's happening right in front of their face. Okay. And so I'm hoping that this book at least gets people thinking about that. Yeah, well, you you certainly hit the ground running with this book. I mean, page two and three, you have so much information right off the bat um 
I mean, for example, you have uh, in here, you have uh, domination of the education system means that their worldview can act as kind of a parasite living on the children of the other traditions and its influences influences spread far beyond their own meager numbers. That's just huge when you when you look at how you just were saying how you know when the generations ago um, you know how the, how they defended the Christian faith and how we need to nowadays uh, be able to work through that this book seems to really point out those two differences rather clearly um, like for example right there on page two. No, I hope so. I mean, what, what I'm, what, one of the things I was kind of getting at with that is I really think that education is one of the devil's hottest topics, I guess you could say, one of the prime targets, because at the very least, a good education is a force multiplier. It can take someone who are, who has good skills and turn them into someone who has stellar skills. Mm -hmm. And if you're thinking about the threat of the gospel spreading from, from a demonic perspective, then a good education has the ability to spread it 10 times faster and be 10 times more winsome and engaging uh, and convincing. The other side is, and I think this is one of the things that uh, I, I think Rack Turn as I talk about him like he's a real demon. Uh, Rackturn was uh, uh, kind of uh, progressive on himself, is that you make the assumption that the devils are out there wanting to destroy Christian education. And they're not. What they're wanting to do, uh, as you mentioned in that quote, is they're wanting to bend it. They would much rather infiltrate it and use our own institutions to turn out... Uh, yeah, to, to turn out um, devils, uh, uh, I call them little Christian devils uh, in mm. the book. Uh, mm. People who mm. sincerely and honestly believe that they are serving the Lord, but have been trained up in ways that are counterproductive to mm -hmm. doing so, if that makes any sense. Certainly. Yeah. Run, running off that thought, you know, the third and fourth questions we presented to you, I'm going to kind of combine those in the fourth one, but kind of piggybacking off something you said a while ago, it's, it seems to me that if I recall correctly, Jesus himself said that it's impossible to to serve both God and money. Um, and I think you bring up a good point because if the focus is on money, then it seems pretty clearly that a lot of times the, the convictions can be taken away off the, the mission that God had appointed. So with that in mind, you know, looking at curriculum and development, um, what does that tell us about the way we should design the courses? But furthermore, you, know, you mentioned the dangers of adopting a business model that lowers educational standards. But what dangers do you see coming from this and even lowering as it were, curriculum and development in favor of the almighty dollar? Well, uh, first, I, I want to hasten to say uh, that I actually think that traditional education has a lot to learn from business. Yeah. If you look at how a lot of schools were run uh, for many years, they were running themselves into the ground. Uh, and business is a good and necessary thing. Oh, uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, 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 yeah. Yeah, I, I like getting paid. 
I like getting yeah. paid on time. <laughs> uh, I like the money that I get paid to be able to put a roof over my head and food on my kids' table, uh, and with a little bit left over, hopefully. Sure. So I, I am in no way uh, knocking the idea of a school making its own way in the world. And I think that uh, if you are wise, then you're going to go out and you're going to seek the best advice that you can on all of those things, on all of those issues from the best people able to give it. And that's going to be business. But the problem is exactly as you said, do you serve God or do you serve mammon? Mm -hmm. The only way that the business model meshes, in my opinion, successfully, with the Christian educational model is if the people who are in charge of the school exercise the most significant and sincere self-discipline mm. because they have to be willing to look at the opportunity to make loads of cash and say no mm. Mm -hmm. that I'm not going to do this because it would violate uh, the mission of this school uh, which is to spread the gospel which is to educate Christians uh, to, to prepare them for life, to try to preserve their faith, uh, and to try mm. to spread the faith as far as possible. Sure. But what I think tends to happen, and this is one of the big dangers uh, of the business model, is it's just so doggone effective at making money. Yeah. And pretty soon people figure out that if you just compromise this little standard, you can make more. Mm -hmm. And if you just compromise this other one over here, you can make even more. And if you, yeah, and you, you keep, it's the death of a thousand cuts. You keep mm -hmm. compromising, you keep compromising, you keep compromising. And pretty soon, an objective observer in uh, and, and this type of situation, they'd have to wake up if they're being honest and look around and say, you know, am I saving the village or am I burning the village? Yeah. Uh, and a lot of times, I think the focus of that mission shifts from god to mammon and because there's still so much um so much talk about christ so much talk about the gospel the the business is hitting that niche so hard it's very easy to convince yourself that you haven't actually changed your mission um, and then, of course, that just sort of snowballs from there because you start we, we mentioned the idea of hiring people who weren't behind the mission because uh, at least not fully because you want to be tolerant they're effective they're so on and so forth well you start doing things like that in the administration too you start bringing in people who are really good at making money and maybe not so interested in the theological uh, or uh, uh, philosophical aspects of it and then they start pushing you farther and farther down that road and then, of course, when you start making real money, you attract those kinds of people like moths to a flame. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, now, what does that do to education? Well, first, I would posit that the minute you make that shift from um, mission focus on Christ and mission focus on education to mission focus on business and money, you have largely declared education impossible. Hmm. Uh, now, why in the world? Uh, that, that's, that's a pretty dramatic statement. It's also yeah. kind of funny. I, I think the Lord maybe intended me to write it this way, because if I had intended it for publication from the beginning, I would not have said some things that I actually said in the book, <laughs> at least not so, uh, not so straightforward. Uh, and this may have been one of them. Uh, but, you know, what's the most basic rule of customer service 
customer is always yeah. right. The customer is always right. You can't yeah. educate someone who is always right. <laughs> I mean, so it, that, right, right. Uh, yeah. you, you go through a process, uh, but it, at the very basis, if the student is always right and the student is, is the customer, then by and large, you've neutered your ability to educate them from the very yeah, beginning. Yeah, that's true. Totally. Yep. Uh, and then you go into the, the next aspect of it is that education is not education. Uh, and once you make that shift into the full core business model, education, um, of course, is about building better people. And sometimes you're trying to build a better person for a specific purpose, like you want to go into a major in theology, you're trying to make them a better theological thinker and speaker. If they're going to go into a medical degree, you're trying to make them better doctors, better nurses, so on and so forth. But it's, a, it's about building better people. Well, once you shift that to business, it's not about building better people. It's about selling a product. Yes, right. And this, and this, I think, is one of the things that a lot of people really misunderstand when they try to analyze the situation. These schools that are under the sway of the hardcore business model are not there to sell educations. Mm. They, are there, they are there to sell tuition hours. Mm. And they, they even talk about it explicitly um, by that, it, with that language. Uh, the, the courses are the products. The tuition hours uh, are the, pro the, the way you measure how the products are sold. And their goal, like any other business, is to sell as many products to as many people as possible using any right. means necessary. Hmm. And you stop and you think about that. Once you understand that, it just makes so many other things make sense about this. Uh, for example, admission standards. One of the most basic principles of business is that you want to try to get your product to as many people as you possibly can. High admission standards prevent you from selling your product yeah. to large numbers of people. So what do you do? Well, you lower your admission standards as low as you possibly can to cram as many people through the process uh, as, as you reasonably can and sometimes uh, as you unreasonably can. And then once you get them into the into the, uh, the the system, the next goal is to keep them there as long as possible. Because of course, yeah, it's great if you sell one tuition hour or one course to one person. But what you really want to do is sell them a major. Mm -hmm. And then once you sell them one degree, you want to sell them another degree. Uh, in fact, I was once privy to a conversation uh, at, at this particular school where. Uh, the provost was talking about the need to accelerate curriculum development and curriculum approval because, quote, I need to get products to the market faster. Mm. Um, so that is, I mean, that, that, that was the kind of conversation uh, that would happen. So once you've got the people in the system, you want to keep them there as long as you can. And to do that, you need to lower the standards of the classes as low as you reasonably can because a lower standard uh, a lower academic standard is easier to pass mm. yeah and so the lower the standards the more people can be pushed through the faster they can be pushed through uh, i also directly observed that uh under the influence of this model uh, a, a near constant pressure uh for your pass rates and the question wasn't did these students do the work 
because you would have a class, uh, for example, that let's say half of the class literally did not turn in their work. You can't pass them because they did not do the work. Right. But that was not what uh, what, what was what the issue was. The issue was that fifty percent of your class did not pass, and so you did not reach that certain pass rate. And then, of course, another aspect that throws into this in this model is um, faculty are not treated as faculty; they're treated they're treated as employees, and they're mm. treated as employees on rotating uh, contracts that last one year. So, if you displease the administration. At the end of that year, they don't even have to give you an excuse. They just non-renew you, as See, it was called. I was, you know, I, I haven't been in higher education uh, to that level, but I was at a church one time that had a model set up like that, where you, you weren't called as the pastor for good until you know something happens. You were on a one-year pro one-year period, and every yearly business meeting you were revoted into, and that was a horrible system. You know, in a month ahead, I was always have I always have anxiety, wondering, okay, did I? You know, it's it's hard to be a pastor, pastor, and yeah. be in a place where you're held yeah. to this standard. Well, if if you did a well enough job, then we'll we'll pass you on to yeah. to continue next year. If not, you know, we'll just not vote you back in. And it was a horrible system, absolutely horrible. Yeah, absolutely, and it's very similar uh, to the situation for professors because. Professors, uh, a good professor is a combination of a shepherd and a gatekeeper. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, I love you, I care about you, I want you to succeed, I want to make you better in every way that I possibly can, so I'm going to shepherd you through this process, I'm going to try my best to make you the best that you possibly can be and help you score as high as you possibly can, but at the same time, if you just don't do it, that's on you. Right. Mm-hmm. And I have to be standing there at that gate and say, no, I'm sorry, you failed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that, that preserves the integrity of the degree and the integrity of the university is what makes you know, these university degrees mean something. Is that yeah, not just if, everybody can pass it? If, if you're not having people who can pass it, and even I would even dare say that if you don't have high standards for a degree uh, or, or high standards for the process, then you've watered it down to the point of... What's the point? I mean, it's just simple. You know, you might as well go out and pay however much it costs to get the whole thing, and just you know, put a paper on your wall because that's all you've done. Yeah, that's uh, the idea of a diploma mill. But you know, bringing it back to the pastor example, one of the things that a pastor has to be able to do is speak hard truth, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they have to be able to speak hard truth to everybody in the congregation. Absolutely. Now, of course, sometimes the congregation has to speak hard truths to the pastor, too. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there has to be a a give and take. There has to be a check and balance. But if you don't feel like you can actually successfully speak truth to people and tell them that the facts, then you're not going to be an effective pastor. The exact same thing is true of a professor. If you've got a professor who is constantly terrified of telling, telling people who have manifestly failed who have just not actually pulled it off, that they failed and they're going to have to try harder, that, that that doesn't help anything but the pocketbook of the people who are taking their money. Well, I'll give you uh, an example of a, a professor I truly admire. I mean, he scared the wits out of me before I had him because I heard so many horror stories, and most of them were true <laughs> about the workload. But that's Dr. Morrison. 
who taught bibliology. And uh, my Lord, I tell you, the, the material he had us read was insane. But I'm going to tell you what, I learned more in his class than about anyone I have ever had because he pushed us to the limit. And um, I think you need that. If you're going to, if you're going to be a successful educator, as you said, a successful pastor, you know, you've got to be able to speak hard truth to people. Otherwise, you know, it's, what's the point? Yeah. Customers do not want to be taken out of their comfort zone. I mean, that's just a simple fact. And I say that from experience. When I am a customer, I don't want you telling me something I don't want to hear. Right. That, that, that's just a fact. Uh, and what, what do I, what do I want? I want to feel like I have, um, gotten what I paid for. Uh, and that, what that generally translates into is many of the students who, who come under this influence are trained to think that there's only so much that they should be asked to do because if there's a real chance of failure, if I'm being pushed to the point where I don't know if I can do this, which is exactly what your professor did to you, mm-hmm. um, that's where you have the, your best chance for growth, but that's where you get the most uncomfortable. <laughs> so what, what, what they generally want is enough work to make them feel like they've done something, but no real chance of failure. And that's, that, that's what the pressure you get uh, in the curriculum development process is. But, and, and I have to say that uh, it, it, to a certain extent, it just gets flat out immoral. Yeah. And what I mean by that is when you have these really low admission standards, I mean, when you're letting in people who basically the, their only qualification is their breathing, uh, and you put them in some of these classes, uh, especially with professors, because I should emphasize this, that, that all of the, pretty much all the professors I know uh, really care about their students, and they care about their craft, and they want to maintain good standards and high standards, and they want to put people through their paces. So eventually, on some of these students are going to reach the point where they just can't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, they cannot perform on the level uh, that they uh, are going to be expected to. Well, in the, the hardcore business model, who cares? Mm-hmm. What the goal was is to get them in the system and keep them there as long as possible and get them buying class after class after class, usually with federal student aid, that they're that it usually in the form of loans, and then eventually they wash out of the program and they've graduated or they haven't graduated. They don't have a degree, but they've got all this college debt. Mm-hmm. And what are they going to do? Well, these are, that's the reason you have strong admission standards to begin with. The, some of these people really did not have um, what it would take, and you could reasonably see that. Oh, sure. uh, and, of course, it's justified six ways from Sunday. One of my favorites is we're the school of second chances. So we're showing compassion on people uh, who otherwise would not be able to get a degree. And usually that, unfortunately, uh, is used to, well, you get the, you get the picture. Gotcha. Mm. I want to I say one quick word before going on to the next, next uh, question. Um, in my undergraduate, I went to Gardner-Webb University in Bowling Springs, North Carolina, great, great school. As part of the the program I had in religious studies and philosophy, we we I was I, it was suggested to me to take a uh, I can't remember exactly the name of the class, but it was a basically a Christian business class, and it was looking at how to do business from a 
from a Christian perspective. And a lot of the things you're talking about really fits in well with that class because, as you said, business is necessary because we need money. We need you know to be able to, to eat. But you, but you can do business, but yet not be sold out to business, per se, or not be so, sold out to only the money perspective. And one of the biggest lessons I learned in that class was really what you were talking about, ethics, coming down to ethics, having good, clear ethics to guide the process. Yeah, when Christ said, love your neighbor as yourself, uh, he didn't say, except in business. Right. Or when it's not convenient. Uh, and, and I would argue, you know, from that perspective, that it very much is a Christian way of business, and it's based on that simple fact. Uh, it doesn't have to be give away the farm. Uh, you know, I, I was thinking about this the other day that uh, if I am a employee or I am a boss, and I try to think about things from how do I want to be treated as a boss or how do I want to be treated as an employee, both sides are. If they're being fair, and that's, I think, part of what Christ uh, assumes as well, they want to be treated uh, with consideration. Mm-hmm. They, want to be, they, they, they don't want to be uh, given everything. They don't want to be coddled necessarily. Uh, they want to be treated fairly. Uh, and think about it from, your, from the perspective that you are in and ask, if I were in this situation, not necessarily what is the most immediate effective solution, but how can what what how would i want to be treated anyway says a lot like empathy we were talking about (laughs) at moralapologetics.com as a cheap plug there (laughs) so in your chat go ahead i'm sorry i said the whole podcast is your plug so uh, (laughs) sounds good to me so in your that's a good point in your chapter on taming the faculty what lessons do you hope uh, your reader will learn well, there's there's a lot going on there, and a lot of it was based on some of the dysfunction that I saw uh, between the administration uh, and the faculty at that particular university. The problem was basically that both sides, uh, and I should I should hasten to emphasize, this book is not a polemic against administration. It's not a polemic against faculty. It's not a polemic against students. What I am hoping is that everybody in this who reads this book from those groups will find something to get angry about and then stop and think about and go, hey, wait a minute. Yeah, that, that, that sadly makes sense. I, I go in for that myself. Um, so I certainly do, do not uh, assume that faculty uh, are these sorts of ideal uh, academic people uh, who are very easy to get along with. Faculty are not easy to get along with. Um, but again, that's another whole topic. Uh, but they kind of, re- both sides kind of regarded the others as stereotypes. You had the administration thinks this, and you can hear the administration talking about the faculty are like that, and so on and so forth. And so, rather than actually really engage with each other uh, on a uh, uh, on on a good basis, uh, y- you had a lot of uh, cut rate Game of Thrones type feeling stuff Um, and since everyone was on these one-year contracts there was this overwhelming sense of fear Mm. Uh, and the I would venture to say that the only two types of people uh, who did not really appreciate that fear uh, were the ones uh, who had not been around long enough to really understand how it worked 
or ones who thought they were in good with the administration. Mm. Uh, they, they sort of felt that uh, they were unassailable. Uh, and I saw several cases where that did not work out very well. But the overall point that, that I guess I'm trying to get at in that particular letter, uh, other than dealing with a lot of the particulars of how this worked out and hopefully forewarning people on how to avoid them, is that the minute you hear someone say that they no longer need accountability, that's the minute uh, that uh, you suddenly realize, like, uh, like Mr. Beaver says in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, you get really nervous and feel for your hatchet mm-hmm. uh, because there, there, there's a problem here. Uh, the minute someone thinks they no longer need accountability, that is the minute they need all the accountability you can pile upon their heads. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and what has ended up happening with the taming the faculty situation is that all the accountability goes one way. Uh, you, you have basically faculty who are living uh, at, and their entire lives, their families' uh, lives, uh, are subject to the drop of a hat uh, or the displeasure of the right person in the administration, or the wrong person, as the case may be. On the other hand, there's actually no way, or very little way, for people in the administration to get real substantive feedback or accountability from the faculty. And that, that just blows my mind. I mean, yes, again, I have a PhD. People with PhDs are quirky. No way around it. Just are. Uh, and dealing with us, especially in large groups, uh, can can cause you all kinds of consternation. Does that mean uh, like if you're in the dissertation phase, you're semi quirking, become full quirky, full quirky afterwards? Uh, no, I would tend to say, and and this is where I get some I get some funny looks from my fellow faculty, that if you go if you even go after a PhD to begin with, there's something wrong with you. Uh, and you know, I, I I am a poster child for this. So this is not me making fun uh, of anybody other than myself. Uh, and the the more you go into, the farther you go into it, the the weirder you tend to get. Uh, and and I don't know that maybe that's just true of brilliant people. Period. Yeah, uh, I, I, I've but, been called uh, well, not the brilliant part, but the weird part. I've definitely been called. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, I, I am def I, I am definitely out there. Uh, but at the same time, when you hire faculty, you hire faculty because they are experts in their field. Mm-hmm. And if you are a Christian university, you're not just hiring experts in your field, you're also trying to hire mature believers. Some of these people uh, that you're hiring to go and haunt the halls of your, uh, of your university uh, and stand up in your classrooms are people who have far more spiritual maturity than maybe you do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I know that uh, I passed people in, in the halls uh, of that university uh, who, whose shadow I was probably not worthy to, uh, to stand in. And to look at all of these people and basically say, we don't care what you think. We don't care uh, what insights that you have on this university or on the uh, the trajectory of this university we we don't think that we need to be actually be held accountable by you at all uh is something that i think is profoundly wrong Hmm. Uh, and i think it's one of the things that that has contributed to some of the train wrecks that we've seen in american evangelicalism oh yeah Uh, and even even outside uh the university system you know ravi zacharias 
pops into my head at the moment. Uh, somebody who was so far above everyone else that uh, there that he had no people to keep him accountable uh, or to check up on him. Uh, and the same thing's true at universities. Uh, yeah, it almost so, seems like not some, a positive. It almost seems like you know, in, just from what I've heard, you know, this is just you know, give that caveat. Yeah, I have heard that you know, Ravi was in a point where he was untouchable, so that most people couldn't speak to him from what I had read. But uh, I think that you're right. Everybody needs accountability of some sort. And um, it is a scary thing for someone to say that they, they don't need that. So now what did you mean and hope to teach in your chapter on Christians Without Chests? I love that title. Uh, that was... Yeah, that was part of uh, the yeah, another, another chance to rip off C.S. Lewis, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, th- that was uh, part of the overall uh, degradation of uh, uh, of education, and in this case of, uh, of of religion and Christianity as a whole, because you've got the same basic dynamic that applied to classes themselves. If you stop and think about it again, everything gets down to how many tuition hours you can sell, how long you can keep people in these programs. Well, at the Christian college and university, you're not, in theory, just imparting knowledge. You are also in the process of imparting character. You're supposed to be building not just this you know, mind, but also somebody who can go out there and live with integrity and bring glory to God through the uh, through through our actions and through our uh, uh, through our lives and careers. And also, the simple fact is, it's not getting any easier to be a Bible believing Christian oh, no. out there in this world. Uh, and so, you're going to have people who are going to be facing significant uh, discrimination at some point, possibly depending on where you go. Outright persecution. And if you're not building up uh, a strong character to go along with the faith, then you're you're doing less than half your job. I don't, I, I would argue, uh, or I should I should say, character to go along with the intellect. Um, but at the same time, I, I got to see that same degradation happen. Uh, most of the schools that I teach for uh, have very strong policies against plagiarism and uh, cheating, for example. Uh, and uh, this uh, the the the, uh, the other school that I've mentioned before too, it did as well. Uh, if you cheat in my class, and I catch you cheating in my class, if you have a clear case of plagiarism, I'm not talking about an accidental sentence that sort of looks like somebody else's. I'm talking about here are whole paragraphs lifted word for word, uh-huh. or, or 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 maybe we've changed a few of the uh, articles around. Um, I always love the ones where they go back and they hit the thesaurus and they keep changing out uh, the thesaurus. <laughs> I actually had one one time uh, that uh, the, the sentence was supposed to be the execution of the uh, laws of the Compromise of 1850. What The paper that was submitted said the beheading of the laws of the Compromise of 1850. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Did you even read this before you submitted it? Uh, nope. <laughs> no. No. Uh, but in those kinds of really clear-cut cases, uh, it, that's just it. You do it. You have been dishonest. We're bringing we're bringing the boom down immediate after the class. Yeah. 
uh, if you do it more than once, you're out of the university, yeah. period. Uh, and of course, you know, you don't have to go that extreme. You, you're, you have discernment that you can apply. But if it's a clear case of dishonesty, you can deal with it as it needs to be dealt with. But as time went along, I, the, this started getting watered down more and more and more. Uh, so first, you started getting pressure from uh, the, the, the people who were watching your success rates. Uh, and 80% of your students, and that was actually one of the uh, one, one of the requirements at one point, 80% of your students had to get, I believe it was either an A or a B. It might have been a C, uh, which, of course, is not the bell curve. Right, Let's put no. it that way. And it didn't matter, uh, again, if people had done the work or if they cheated or whatever, if you didn't hit that magic number, you were going to be in trouble and you were going to get pressure. And so there was pressure to, well, maybe not give this person an F. You know, can you work with them? Can you mm. show them some grace? Uh, because students who fail classes tend to change schools. Uh, and that's the last thing you want in this hardcore business model is anyone, any customer leaving your business. Uh, and so there, there was pressure to try to keep them in the system. Uh, and the pressure, you kept getting ratcheted up and ratcheted up. And then eventually, now by the time I left, uh, they had actually changed the policy uh, to where if someone did blatant cheating in your class, you were not allowed to give them an F. You had to actually, uh, you had to actually right. give them. You you could grade them down a little bit. Oh my! Goodness. And you had to get you had to give them a warning, and then if they did it again, you could revisit the issue. Uh, and this, of course, was you know, it sends the message, uh, like Rack Turn points out in the book, that there are greater sins than dishonesty at this university, which is specifically transferring schools. Hmm. So uh, all of that, I think, uh, really starts to wear down uh, the character. It kind of makes me wonder if even some churches have adopted this model because in a lot of places it becomes more like numbers. And let's not worry if a person's living an immoral life. We don't want them to go to another church. Uh, so we'll just kind of look over that. I'm seeing some parallels, you know, in some church ministries that could very well follow the same suit. Yeah, let's not talk about non-disclosure agreements. And that, <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, is another whole question. Uh, and in a lot of uh, of some or some of the larger Christian universities, uh, some professors are being forced into uh, signing these non-disclosure agreements by the way they're terminating contracts. Hmm. Uh, I saw that happen multiple times. What they would do is, you know, you're on this one-year contract, and so they would wait until literally the school year was over, and then they'd bring down the boom and hand you your pink slip. Now, to people who may not know how the, the job hunt works for uh, colleges and universities, if you're going to get a job for next year, you have to start looking that fall. Mm. Because the hires that are going to go, if the hires right now that are going to, going to go into effect in 2022, they're actually hiring them right now in 2020 in fall of 2021. Uh-huh. And there's going to be an, there's going to be another round like in early January, February, where they fill all the jobs for the people who left during the fall. Uh, so the long and short of it is, if you don't know where you're going to be by February at the latest, you are probably looking at at least one year of unemployment. At least. At least. Um, 
And the way this market is, it could be longer than that. Oh, absolutely. You could be looking at, uh, you know, being a greeter at Lowe's. Yeah. You know, not a, not, not a bad gig, I imagine, but not what you're trying to do if you're wanting to stay in higher education. Right. And so what they would do is they would uh, wait and they would give people no warning. Graduation comes around in May. They drop the ball. They drop the boom on them, hand them their pink slips, and then basically say, we'll give you a severance package, but you have to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Mm. And, of course, that leaves the people who just got dropped looking at it going, if I don't sign this thing, my family may not eat. Right. Because there's no guarantee I'm going to be able to go out and get another job. Um, uh, it, it's, just, it's just outright dishonest uh, when you start getting to that level. And I'll just flat out say it. Uh, I am of the opinion that people who routinely use non-disclosure agreements have something to hide. And the fact that you're using it tends to is is a giant megaphone that I'm hiding something. Hmm. So uh, it, it's not it, it's not a good look for either a Christian university or a Christian ministry. Absolutely. So we we've spoken a bunch about dangers. Before I go into this, Curtis, do you have another question? I'm, I've been hogging the conversation. No, that's good. Yeah, it's all good. <laughs> I, one thing I do notice though is is uh, is so you're you're coming at it from from this aspect, but look at how the culture's being broke down on the other end. So the kids, the children, or the the students, or even the other faculty members that are maybe um, are coming in are already being broke down to to accept and receive this style of of education. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, our culture um, is very much set up to create customers. And that's mm -hmm. what, you know, the, the, the church has just, I think, absorbed that from the larger culture. And I, uh, as Rackturn again points out in the book, Christ did not call us to be customers. He called us to right. be servants. Mm. And there's wow. a huge difference between a servant uh, and a customer. A customer, you know, bulldozes their way through life demanding to see the manager anytime something happens that they don't like. Uh, and a servant, on the other hand, is going to have a completely different worldview. And that's where I uh, sort of got this idea of little Christian devils from, mm. is when you create this atmosphere in the church or in the, in the university that tells people that you are first and foremost a customer in this life, then when they go out, even with the best of intentions, they're going to be living out that worldview that they have absorbed. And I guarantee you that the people who see them in their ministries and in their careers um, living that way, they are not going to be impressed with, the, mm. with, with, with what they see. Hmm. It kind of makes me wonder if, if, if part of this, I mean, not, not saying that, that the blame shouldn't be placed where it is. Not not trying to d defer or anything like that, but it does make me kind of wonder if there is a cultural problem behind all of this too. Because I know when I worked in retail, um, I, I wasn't a greeter, but I did work in retail. <laughs> but uh, it, it you've probably heard the phrase the the squeaky wheel gets the oil, and it did seem like that was the case. Whenever uh, someone would pitch a fit, they would they would cry foul or whatever the case may be, just to get their way. 
then 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 the ministration would break down and they would allow that person to have whatever they wanted because as the phrase goes the customer's always right but then if a person came through and they were a kind-hearted person and they didn't really pitch a fit then they were just kind of cast aside well me you know i i kind of wanted to take care of the nice ones <laughs> the best i could yeah but it does make you kind of wonder if that's not even a larger cultural issue that's going on that where we have bought into this idea that the customer is always right that we are consumers and that uh our way is always right and can we really truly be good disciples adopting that mindset well, I, you know, I personally think that uh, this is just the natural outgrowth of uh, the popularization of po- the postmodern worldview. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the postmodern worldview tells you that you are the center of the universe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That everything that comes in your purview, you determine the meaning and value of. Um, uh, I, I, that's one. Of the, I've never understood people who like postmodernism. Uh, as a way of literary theory, because to me that's like standing in a standing in a box with uh, with reflective glasses. All you're going to do is see yourself. Yeah. And you're never going to learn anything bigger. You're never going to learn anything greater. But it's the same basic idea, and, and I think the church is playing to that too. Uh, at least the, at least the churches uh, that are really falling into that trap, mm-hmm. they're going out there and trying to treat people the way they not. Uh, it's, it's going to sound kind of ironic. Treat people the way they want to be treated, but in this case, in terms of education, you want to treat people the way they need to be treated. You want to love them uh, the way they need to be loved, not just mm-hmm. give them everything uh, that they uh, that they think they want. Yeah, yeah. So love them, love them enough to tell them no. Yes. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. That so, hard truth. As as a way of bringing this all the way all around uh, back to the finish line. In addition to what we've mentioned, are there other dangers, big dangers you see facing Christian higher education and maybe even higher education in general? Well, uh, I think uh, uh, probably the other main uh, threat that I would see to higher education in general and to Christian education in particular is political. Yeah, We live uh, in uh, a, a day and age, which again, this could be another whole podcast, of absolute uh, extremes, absolute polarization. Uh, it's it's polarization on a level that is coming to rival the 1850s uh, in many cases, I think. And as things are being polarized you know, at the national level, people are being expected and forced to, um, I, I guess in some cases, place political idols in the place of Christ. Uh, mm-hmm. They're expected to have uh, higher loyalties to whatever political movement or group uh, they think uh, you know, they, they, they think they're expected to. Uh, we see this a lot in the secular universities uh, as we look at the, uh, uh, the woke culture and as we look at uh, you know, the extreme leftism uh, that is uh, dominating some university campuses. It's the same basic idea: is that you must bring your intellect into line with these particular points of view, regardless of what your faith says. Uh, and I think there is that real danger that we could walk away and um, uh, start mistaking um, start mistaking uh, our politics for our God. 
what we and don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to say in any way, straight shape, or form that Christians should not be involved in politics, or that there aren't some clear implications of the Christian worldview for which politics are right and wrong. Sure. There are, but you never get to. We should never get to the point where our politics control our faith, and our loyalties are connected to our politics first, as opposed to our faith first. So our uh, theology should drive our politics rather than our politics driving our theology. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. You just said in two seconds what I took five minutes to say. <laughs> uh, common problem with professors. Uh, and then connected to that uh, is the fact that we are seeing these two extremes almost go to war with each other. Uh, and you uh, I've, I've heard uh, it said by my major professor, Steve Woodworth, that he turns Carl von Clausewitz on his head and he said, politics in the United States since 1960 has been war carried on by other means. Hmm. And I think he's really on to something there. Uh, well, of course, he's the brilliant, uh, the brilliant Civil War historian, not me. Uh, but what, what he's getting at is that if the U.S. system that was created all those years ago was not such an excellent system. And what he meant by that was that if the U.S. system was not as good as it was, then the two sides that we have had in the U.S. since the 1960s would probably be shooting at each other by now. I mean, if you had a this situation in a different country at a different time, the system may not have been as resilient as it actually is. And what that means, of course, is that as the school Christian schools um, begin to move forward into this increasingly leftist uh, atmosphere, mm -hmm. I think you're going to start to see the political left increasingly reach out and strike directly at the Christian education system. And for the same reasons that Rackturn talks about, is mm -hmm. that the last thing you want are well-educated, uh, well-spoken people for the other side. You don't want those ideas to be uh, to be out there. I remember some of the uh, wonderful conversations I had in graduate school. There were people who had never even heard, for example, an intelligent pro-life perspective. They wow. didn't know it existed because they had never been exposed to it. And, of course, if you're someone who is a very partisan on that particular topic, you don't want it out there. You want to stop it. And so I think you're going to start to see increasingly – uh, politics being used to threaten and strike against uh, various and sundry uh, Christian institutions. Uh, there's a, a case already going on right now where a group of uh, former students of various Christian universities are running a class action lawsuit uh, against them, saying that Congress should deny, or the Department of Education should deny all federal funding to these schools because uh, they don't promote certain agendas. Hmm. And it's a simple fact, unless you're Hillsdale College, well, which I think they were absolutely brilliant on this, the vast majority of the money that comes into most even Christian schools comes out of the federal pocket. The vast majority of the money I make that put food on my table could eventually be traced back to someone's student loan. Hmm. So if all of a sudden you just cut that off, then that's a real threat. Uh, and there are other ways to go about it, too. Absolutely. So. And it seems to me, you know, as, as the late Norm Geisler said, a clear mind and a pure heart are dangerous to the devil. 
Um, and I think there's a lot of truth in that. And so it seems to me that with that being the case, that educational systems would strive to build instead of promote um as you said, business is a part of it, but but instead of focusing so much on the business and promoting development of Christian thinkers, so that some of these threats that we have facing us could be could be challenged in in a winsome yet effective manner. Yeah, I mean that, that's the bottom line. Uh, we should be training people to go out and really win the culture, mm-hmm. really engage the culture on every level. Uh, th- there should be people out there making Christian movies that aren't, you yeah. know, whatever the world did five years ago with the salvation message crammed in at the most inappropriate spot. Uh, <laughs> we we should be writing Christian books along the lines of J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, yeah. who goes out there and through the expression of his Christian worldview, uh, and the more you look at Tolkien, the more you understand his biography and where he came from, the more it is absolutely inextricable from his Christian worldview. He's influenced millions. He defined entire genres of literature, and he did it as a Christian. Absolutely. I tell my history students that you have absolutely nothing to be ashamed of as a Christian who does scholarly history, mm-hmm. because you can go out and you can do good, strong, scholarly history, and you can do it because of your worldview, not in spite of it. That's right. So it, that's what we should be doing. And, and I guess to bring it all back around, that's one of the reasons why I wrote that book, is that I hope people will read it. I hope people will be engaged with it, and they'll be able to see some of these things uh, and try to turn it around uh, before, it gets too, before it's too late. Absolutely. So, Brian, could you tell us about how people can access your ministry and resources? Do you have other books on the way? Um, well, uh, ministry is probably kind of a strong uh, description uh, of me at the moment, at least from this perspective. Um, my, my ministry is uh, teaching my students, uh, writing when I get the chance, uh, showing hospitality with my wife to people uh, who want to come to our home. Uh, so... If you want to get in touch with me, I'm on Facebook, uh, and I'm glad to talk. I'm glad to engage as much as I can, within reason, of course. Um, I, 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 we just had another baby. Um, yeah, uh, I've got uh, working for for four different schools. You get the idea. You're a and busy you're man. Oh yeah. Uh, and if you're interested in the book, uh, then the number one place, of course, I can send you is moralapologetics.com. Uh, They obviously are a phenomenal organization, uh, first-rate scholarship, good translation down uh, to to, to a more popular level, uh, and uh, they published my book. So, you know, uh, what else else do you need to say about them? (laughs) Well, Brian, it's been a joy and privilege to have you on. The book is The Rackturn Method. Our author is Dr. Brian Melton, professor extraordinaire and author extraordinaire. So we're going to turn it over to Curtis at this time. All right. This is a good podcast. This is great uh, getting to discuss some of this stuff and and, uh, actually looking in and digging into some of this is going to help us uh, be able to see where we want to put our kids for education and maybe uh, give it a second thought of of, uh, how we do things. So. But we here at Bellator Christi want to thank you for spending time together with us, and we value that time. Our prayer is that this podcast helps stretch your mind and is a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and is a reliable source of information. 
Join us next time on the Bellator Christie Podcast. And until next time, Brian and I say, Soldier, Soldier on, on, friends. listening to the Bellator Christie podcast brought to you by bellatorchristie.com the opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates the Bellator Christie podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under creative commons copyright all rights reserved the opening theme is the song crucified written by John and Michaela Limanis performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Do you have a question about the Bible, theology, or apologetics that you've always wanted to ask but never felt comfortable asking? If so, we want to encourage you to head over to bellatorchristie.com and submit your question on the Submit a Question link. Your question will be reviewed and may be featured on a future article or podcast. Remember, the only dumb question is the one unasked. So go over to bellatorchristie.com now and submit your question. Have you ever wondered about the Christian faith, but have become bogged down by difficult terminology? Are you a Christian and faced doubts and you didn't know where to turn? Maybe your faith has been challenged and you don't know how to respond. Or perhaps you desire to learn more about how to winsomely defend your faith, but you do not have the time nor the finances to enroll in seminary. If any of these situations describes you, then consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. This book confronts the challenges facing the Christian faith, but does so in a way that is accessible to everyone. The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is available in softcover, hardcover, on the Kindle, and Nook. Consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics from your favorite bookstore today.